So last week, here we are in chapter 17. That's how I put it in my notes. We're doing a chronological journey through the Gospels, where I'm taking all four Gospels and meshing them together. Pretty much for a little while, we're going to be stuck in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels. John is kind of not dealing with much of what's going on during this time period of Jesus's ministry. John will become significant toward the end of Jesus's ministry and bring in details that the other gospel writers do not tell us about. And then at times, all four will mention a single event. It's very rare that all four mention a single event, but we will discover the feeding of the 5,000 being one of those events um, where they all chime in and, and give a version of that event that took place during the time of Christ. So last week we learned that Jesus went about teaching. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He was healing the sick and people throughout all the region of Galilee. And they traveled all, all the way from, we had Syria named, we had the Decapolis, which was uh, east of the Jordan River, 10 Roman cities that was built there in Israel at that time, uh, deeming some 100,000 people living in that area alone, all the way down to the Judea and Jerusalem, people traveling from 95 to 150 miles, if you calculate the regions that were mentioned at the end of our teaching last week, that they were coming to hear Jesus. They were coming to be touched by Jesus. And it seems that while all this was going on, the businesses, busyness of the ministry going on, there's some points where it seems that Peter, Andrew, James, and John started fishing again. They went back to the old trade, being fishermen. When the Lord had called them to become fishers of men, we find them in their boats once again at the beginning of our teaching here today. So I titled this Lesson number 17, follow, following and seeking Jesus. And we're going to look at a great catch from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, touch, touching the untouchable. Luke 5, 12 through 16 will be our target verses. And faith of four friends, Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. And I have it in your notes, the underlined Verses in the points is where I'm going to be teaching from, but we know points two and three. We have Matthew and Mark giving us commentary on that as well. But we're going to begin in Luke chapter five, verses one through 11. Now, some have really tied this together with Jesus calling Peter and Andrew, James and John to be fishers of men that we've already read about in Matthew and Mark's gospel. Some have this as a separate event, mainly because there is a teaching connected to it. And so it's different than how Matthew and Mark described it, where Jesus was walking by the seashore and he saw some fishermen in the boat and called them to become fishers of men. Here we find that Jesus is teaching. The crowds are surrounding him and he steps into Peter's boat and he uses it as a a pulpit from which to teach the people. So we begin reading in Luke's gospel, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, and the word of God tells us, now, it, now so it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. So he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put it out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. So Lake Gennesaret, uh, Luke only uses this term. This is what we know best of as the Sea of Galilee. He's there on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is one of the lowest points in that region. And if you go to visit there, they don't necessarily have flat shores around the Sea of Galilee. It actually inclines to some 1,200 feet over the sea, what makes it being a very shallow lake, uh, only 12 miles long and anywhere from 5 to 7 miles wide, but relatively a shallow, shallow lake when the winds come over those high hills or low foothills of the mountains. It can really churn up the water, which we'll read about 
when the disciples get on a boat with Jesus and are sleeping and the storms come, it can become pretty severe there in the Sea of Galilee. Only Luke uses the term, and probably more correct, a lake. It's not a salt water, but fresh water. It teems with fish to this day. But especially in the northern area of the Galilee, uh, the seashore rises up from the ocean. So just think about this perfect amphitheater where Jesus is sitting in the boat and the shore is rising up and the people sitting on around. Uh, it's how we build amphitheaters today. You have a, the orchestra pits or the stage lower and the audience kind of rising up that the sound will carry. Jesus obviously using this knowledge to have his voice be heard by the people, but also to stop the people from pressing in on him. The crowds had become so great that it was safer for Jesus to separate himself and to be in the boat while he was teaching. And it seems that Jesus then, using the natural acoustics of the water to help amplify his voice, we find him doing it again in Mark 4, verse 1, a different event. And he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat on it on the sea, and the whole multitude on the land was facing the sea. And so we have this picture of everybody there attending a church service with Jesus as the preacher. Had to be a great thing to see. So verses 4 through 8, when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets were breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and they filled both boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at the knees of Jesus saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now this was something for all the disciples that were there present. We know that Peter and Andrew, James and John were part of this four-man team, two separate boats, because Luke will tell us their names. But I think this is really significant in Peter's life. Because Peter is the one, it was his boat, Peter is the one that obeyed the command of the Lord, Peter is the one who responded with the multitude of the catch, realizing that he was doing what this carpenter turned preacher, who possibly wasn't a fisherman, um, told him to do that was beyond the logic of a good fisherman, saying, we've toiled all night, we know the best time to be fishing, Lord. We've done that. We've caught nothing, but at your word, we will cast out the nets. Peter surrendered to the words, faithfully obeying the command of Jesus, even though they went beyond what his logic would say would happen. And they were all amazed at the result. Peter, in fact, he fell at the knees of Jesus. He cried out, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And this is the first time we find one of the 12 disciples worshiping at the feet of Jesus. And it was because he had seen now that Christ could not only preach the word of God like no other, prophesy of future events, touch and heal the sick, and in a moment we'll see, cleanse the lepers, but that he had command, authority over the natural elements of this earth. And so in a sense, the word of Christ going forth, a word of prophecy, cast in your nets. And they had this great catch. And it, it caused Peter to become convinced, actually convicted of his sins, similar to what we read in 1 Corinthians 14, 24 and 25, where it says, But if all prophesy... And an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. So falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. So there was this revelation that caused Peter to fall down at the feet of Jesus, 
and to worship Jesus, knowing that God was at work and knowing the sinful condition of his own heart. And though Peter had already followed Jesus, heard his teachings, saw the many wonderful things that he had done, it took a great catch of fish to convince him of his own sins and to cry out to the Lord for the Lordship of Christ over his life. And so Jesus, in verses 9 through 11, said, let me catch up where we're at. Verse 9, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and who were the partners of Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when he had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. The disciples, astonished, fearful, because this carpenter turned prophet, teacher, and healer, now having revealed his authority over the natural realm as well, over nature, told him, from now on, men, you will catch men. We read a, a few weeks ago from Matthew's gospel that I will make you become fishers of men. And I like how that was worded. I don't know. I think it was from Mark's gospel that we read that. But that phrase, I will make you become fishers of men. There's a process of learning how to share our faith with others and living Christ before others and to become effective at it. And it's what Christ does for us. He makes us become fishers of men, fishers of women, of children in this world. So two things we learn from this passage we are to obey the words of Jesus, even though they may seem to go against human logic. For Peter, he actually told the Lord, we've toiled all night, we've caught nothing, but at your word, we'll launch out. And that's the process of faith. In John 15, 13, and 14, it tells us, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. So being obedient to the words of Jesus, even though at times it seems to go against logic. And we should be willing also, secondly, to forsake all to follow the call of Jesus. Now, to forsake all, we learned last week that as we were looking at the passage, I brought in the fact that Paul argued about traveling in the ministry, and he said, are we not allowed to take our wives like Simon or Cephas? He used that name for Peter, but like Cephas does and the other apostles, he didn't forsake his family in the sense of walk away from everybody in that sense, but he forsook the plan for his life to follow the call of Jesus upon his heart. In Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11, it tells us that Paul talking, what things were gained for me, these things I have counted for loss. Philippians 3, 8, yet indeed I also count all things for loss, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed into his death by any means that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead, that I might know him. That's the sense of forsaking all, that we might come into a relationship with Christ that he's called us to and sometimes recalls us to. He's already uh, made that call to Peter, James, John, and Andrew to become fishers of men. And now he finds them fishing for fish again. And he says, come on, boys. I thought we already talked about this. But Peter, we're going to discover that he's going to return to the boats again. After Jesus' death and resurrection from the grave, he was told his disciples to meet him in the Galilee. They went up to the Galilee. 
um, after Jesus had resurrected from the grave, they'd already seen the Lord. They went up to the Galilee to meet him there, and he didn't arrive in what they felt was a timely fashion. And so Peter said to the boys, let's go fishing. And once again, he will be in John's gospel. It will tell us out in the boat fishing. And suddenly they'll see a man walking on the seashore and he'll say, how's the fishing going, boys? Not catching nothing. Cast your net on the other side of the boat. Beyond logic once again. But they obeyed. And the catch was so great, 153 fish on that catch. John said, it's the Lord. Peter jumped in the water, swam to the shore. He needed to be reminded again. And I think perhaps Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, was given for Peter the first time of a great fish where he realized his sinfulness and the Lord still called him to become fishers of men. And then at least two years later, a very similar picture takes place again. And this time, Peter truly forsook all and followed Jesus. Sometimes it takes the Lord a little longer to work in us, to get us where he needs us to be, that will follow him in the way that he has called us to walk in his ways. So my question today is, have you forsaken all to follow the call of Jesus for your life? And do you know the call of Jesus for your life? Is it a call that you feel that that was back then, but it's not for now? Well, I will say that maybe it is for now. And maybe it's a matter of timing that God is working, waiting to do a work in your life. Maybe it's a matter of full surrender for him to do that work. So we move from this event. Luke takes us right to the healing of a man who had leprosy. But Matthew 8, 1 through 4, tells us of this event as well. Mark 1, 40 through 45, finally, 17 teachings into the chronological view of the gospel. And we're finally going to get out of the gospel of Mark. And next week we'll be in Mark chapter 2. But um, actually enter into our next point in Mark chapter 2. We're gonna, I'm going to teach from that. But here we have what I titled Touching the Untouchable. In Matthew's account, it seems that Jesus had went from a solitary place to spend time with the Father because Matthew tells us, Matthew 8, 1, we're going to be looking at Luke 5, beginning in verse 12. But I thought this was significant. I just wanted to throw it in there. Matthew 8, 1, when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Now, it does not say that he was up on the mountain praying, but we do know that Jesus had this habit of withdrawing to the wilderness to pray. And I would assume Jesus coming down from the mountain meant that he came down from a session of prayer with his father. The multitudes began following him, pressing in on him. And Luke tells us, Luke 5, verse 12, it happened when he was in a certain city, And none of the Gospels tell us the location, so a certain city will have to do for us. That behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus. He fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Today, this is known as Hansen's disease. And according to the CDC, if leprosy is caught early enough and with the right medications, it can be cured. But that was not the case in Jesus' day, nor in the Old Testament. The Mosaic Law gives us laws concerning leprosy and to kind of sum up the laws of leprosy for the Jewish people that God instituted through Moses. Uh, Those with leprosy were isolated from social contact by dwelling outside of the city walls or the camps. So they were outside of the communities. They were to wear mourning clothes. That meant that they had to tear their clothes. They had to leave their hair in disarray. Ladies, that would be horrible, I know. If you were a man and you had a beard, you had to cover your beard. And all had to cry, unclean, unclean. 
if people would come around, that the people would know that, one, they would not be defiled and also be made unclean by contact, but also the possibility of catching the disease. So in Jerusalem, the lepers dwelt in what was known as the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was the place where they burned trash in Jerusalem. And the fires continually burned in that valley. And so it was really kind of a, a place of the walking dead where the fires continued, continually burned, a very vivid picture of hell here upon this earth. Last week I had mentioned the teaching and preaching about the gospel of the kingdom by Jesus, the healing of those who were sick, that they were evidences of Jesus, that he was the Messiah. When John the Baptist, not yet in prison, but when he was in prison, would send back his two of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? Jesus would respond in Luke seven twenty two, go tell John the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see... The lame walk, the leopards are cleansed. So up to this point, we do not read about Jesus healing anyone of leprosy. And so I think from the faith perspective of this individual that came to Jesus and said, if you are willing, I can be made clean. It just shows us the faith of this individual to ask Christ to do something that at this point, we know of no evidence that he had done this before. We only learn in the New Testament of one other occasion where Jesus healed the lepers. At that time, it would be 10 who had leprosy and came to Jesus for healing. And of course, of the 10, they would go off and only one, a Samaritan, would return to give thanks to the Lord for the healing that took place. And Jesus at that occasion would say, where are the other nine? Didn't, weren't they 10 of you? And only one gave praise and came back to give thanks to Jesus when they were healed. So we only read about two occasions in the New Testament. We do read that Jesus gave the disciples power to cleanse the lepers, but we never read of that happening. We can assume that they did. But the man's question if you are willing, it shows the great faith that he had in Christ, the ability of Christ to do for him what no one else could do. In the Old Testament, we only read of a few who had leprosy. Moses' sister, Miriam, was the first person named or mentioned of having leprosy, and that was in God's judgment against her. Nahum, Gehazi, uh, four unnamed lepers outside the wall of Samaria, King Uzziah, all had leprosy. We only read of two being healed in the Old Testament, Miriam and Nahum, who was not even of Israel, but a, a captain of the Assyrian army. Only two being healed. So it was very rare that anyone was even healed of leprosy. And as far as we know, Jesus had not yet done this for anyone but the man's faith, saying, if you are willing... And although we may believe that Jesus can do all things, we must learn to pray in the same way. Lord, if you are willing, if you are willing. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise toward us, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Here's a prayer that we can pray that we know that the Lord is willing about. When we have friends and loved ones who don't know Christ as their Savior, we can lift up their names before Jesus because we know that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We know that that prayer would be in the will of God to pray for the lost to be healed and saved. And Jesus responding, I am willing. 13 and 14 said he put out his hand and touched him. Said, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest, make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. So according to Mark, before Jesus reached out and touched this man, it tells us that he was moved with compassion. 
The Greek word translated as compassion here means to have one's inwards kind of moved or to yearn with compassion. It is exactly how you felt when you heard about the shooting in Texas, when it just crushed your soul. That's the word that Jesus had here. He was moved with compassion. He yearned. He reached out and he touched the man. Here's the thing of God. Psalm 86.15 tells us that the Lord is full of compassion. He is gracious and long-suffering, abundant in mercy and truth. The Lord is full of compassion. The Lord is moved with compassion toward us to this day. The Lord not only touched him, he said, I am willing to be cleaned. So by his touch and through his words, this man was made clean. And the Lord is willing. He has been willing. He came and gave his life on the cross as an offering for our sins to show us the willingness of Christ that we might be made whole. Now, it's not that the Lord did not command this man to not tell anyone what Christ did. I want you to read what the Lord said. Go show yourself to the priest, verse 14, make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. So actually Jesus said, go do what the law says you ought to do for one who is healed of leprosy. There was a process, but he also said, as a testimony to them. Now, the priests were part of the process of identifying leprosy. And so if somebody had a, a sore that wasn't going away, uh, they would go to the priest. He would, they had this whole process. It took seven days, sometimes 14 days. They would watch it. They would uh, determine whether it was just a sore that would heal up on its own or it was a wound that would not heal. It was deemed leprosy. So the priests were part of this man's process at the beginning to actually declare him as leprous and to put him outside the camp or the city walls. And now they would be part of the process in the cleansing. And they would ask, how did you get well? This is an incurable disease. And he would say, well, Jesus. And he would tell the whole story as a testimony to them. And I believe we are best witnesses for Christ when we obey the commands that God gives us. Now, this man did not wait to get to the temple to go to the priest and do the process. He began to proclaim it, verses 15 through 16. The report went all around concerning him. And the more, the great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by Jesus of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew to the wilderness and prayed. So the man's report caused Jesus to become so popular that he had to pull away. I believe he came down from the mountain, even though it doesn't tell us why. Jesus was up on the mountain, but Mark's gospel, Matthew's gospel, chapter 8, verse 1, tells us that after he came down from the mountain, this event took place. I believe he came down from prayer, and he often, now at the close of this, in verse 11, Luke 5, 11, uh, 516, he would often withdraw and to pray with his father. He was being over, overwhelmed by ministry and by people. Pressure was coming from all directions. And he would often retreat for prayer. Though it seems the man was disobedient to the Lord's command that he didn't first go to the priest, but he actually proclaimed what the Lord had done for him. I understand it. When you're healed, you're healed. And you want to share it with your loved ones. He had been touched by Jesus. He had been healed of incurable disease. Why wouldn't you want to tell others what Jesus has done for you? And it's what Christ has done for us. The Bible tells us that all is sin and fall short of the glory of God. That we have, because of the fall of Adam and Eve, we have a sin nature that we cannot, by any good works, overcome. It's only through the touch of Jesus that we might be made whole. The Bible tells us not only that all of sin falls short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, but Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So the cost of our sin is death. 
But Jesus came that we might have life. Jesus came to touch the untouchable. So much so that Romans 6.23 finishes by saying, and the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's Jesus who bore his sins, our sins in his own body on that tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness. It's by his stripes we are healed, 1 Peter 2.24. And may we never forget that Jesus Christ is willing to touch the untouchable. I've been in those situations twice. Two men, uh, one on a job here in the United States with a real bad wound, and um, once in Africa. Uh, his name was Paul, and he had a he needed stitches. But uh, being the brick mason I am, when I went on that construction trip, I knew the injuries that I normally would get when working with tools, and I brought my my medical kit, I always had uh, tape to tape up the wounds. It was natural for bricklayers to get blowouts. We called them blowouts in our fingertips. It's bad for a guitar player, but uh, natural to get blowouts in your fingertips. So we would tape up often, like athletes going to battle. And uh, the one man uh, coming from Chicago, I know the AIDS ec epidemic was pretty high. Uh, in Africa, it is very high. And yet these guys were wounded, they were bleeding, and I just quickly said a prayer, Lord, and said, these guys need help, I'm taping them up, I'm taking care of them, Lord be with me, I'm, I'm fine, I'm glad that I am. But sometimes we might find ourselves in a situation where we'd rather not help, and I can tell you in both situations there was no, no mask, no gloves going on, first let me doctor up, and I didn't have all that. In fact, the best we'd have on the trades would be a bucket of water. It's not that it was the most clean situation, but willing to help out in the time of need, willing to help those who at times you think, I don't want to mess with that. I don't want to touch that. Jesus, willing to touch the untouchable as followers of Jesus Christ, we have to be willing to do those things as well, to minister to others in their hour of great need. Now, this was a challenge, and I've been rolling through these because... Uh, I wanted to get to this last account. It's found in Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8, Mark chapter 2. We're going to look at Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. So you can go there in your Bibles now. Also, Luke talked about this in Luke 5, verses 17 through 26. So we're just following the order that Luke gave us in his gospel uh, through this whole teaching. But several years ago, going through this passage, I realized not only did the Lord heal this paralytic man, but the words of Jesus on this occasion, he healed and touched this man because of the faith of the four friends. And that spoke so much to me. It still speaks a lot to me of how much influence that we can have in other people's lives for Christ to do a work of ministry through them and through us. The faith of four friends is what I titled our last point. We're going to be looking at Mark's gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, but beginning in verses 1 and 2, it tells us that Jesus again entered into Capernaum after many days, and when it was heard that he was in the house, he may have been at Peter's house, we're not sure, but he's in the house, immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer any room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word of God to them. I've only saw this on two occasions in my life as a child in uh, Winthrop Harbor, going to the Baptist church there that I grew up in as a child. And the uh, Blackwood Brothers Quartet came and they sang and it was so crowded that they had to open the windows and people sat outside to hear the Blackwood Brothers sing that night. I've never seen that around here. When we lived out in Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, it was a weekly occurrence. Their sanctuary seated 3,000 people. On a Sunday morning, it could not contain the people who came to hear the Word of God. So now they have high-tech um, one of the windows, very large window, 
it's actually now a video screen and you can just watch pastor, well now it's uh, Brian, but pastor Chuck at the time uh, in the courtyards never contained the number of people. So they were outside the house. That's the picture that we have here. Luke tells us in Luke 5, 17, that often when Jesus came, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, were there, and here on this occasion, out of coming out of every town of the Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, and Luke tells us, and this is important, Luke 5, 17, the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Now the scribes, the Pharisees, they were there to try to trap Jesus. They were there uh, to investigate what was going on. They did not like this new teacher who had such popularity. I mean, they would come to the house and maybe two people would show up. Jesus shows up and they can't even get in the doors. So they were having problems with Jesus here. But I want you to take notice that the word tells us the power of the Lord was present to heal them, to heal them, everyone that was in the room. Some were there to hear Jesus, to see Jesus. Some were there to be touched and healed by Jesus. Others were there to try to find something by which they might accuse Jesus. And the same can be true in our churches today. When people gather together, we all have different motives, different needs. Not everybody always comes with the purest of motives. Nevertheless, I believe that any time the body of Christ gathers together, that the power of the Lord is present to heal them. And I believe even to this day, the power of the Lord is present to heal. So verses 3 and 4 tells us, Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic, who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through... They let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Four men bringing their friend to Jesus in hopes that the Lord would touch and heal this man. And although it took a bit of effort to carry the man there to Jesus, when they got to the house, they discovered that they couldn't even get through the doors, much alone one person squeezing through. Think about four guys carrying, um, carrying this man that there's no way they're going to get in. But they had this mindset, if I can only get to my friend of Jesus, maybe he'll get saved. We lived at Calvary Chapel, well, we lived across the street. We were out in Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa for two years when I went to the School of Ministry. Across the street was a, a group of townhomes, houses, apartment buildings. There were, every unit had four units in it. And uh, they dubbed it... Calvary Cove or Gospel Gulch. So many people from Calvary Chapel lived across the street. It was a great community at the time to live there. But I worked for two years as a janitor at nights. I went to school and started at 7 a.m. for my classes. And then at night from 3 to midnight, I'd work and start the whole process over again. But every Monday night, Greg Laurie would come and do a Monday night with Greg Laurie. And he'd have a worship team and the Sanctuary was filled up and they were overflowing outside. They were in the overflow room. Uh, the fellowship hall we could hold at least 500 people there. And every Monday night, 92 to 94, somewhere between 100 and 150 people would accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. So I was a janitor. I wasn't there. In fact, I only think I actually sat in one time. I was just you know, Greg's over there. I'm vacuuming classrooms, uh, mopping floors. I was doing my job. But I saw this happen every week, and it was an amazing thing to see. And I began kind of in my head developing this thought from the friends that were bringing their friends to Jesus. I believe that they were saying, if I could only get my friend to Monday night with Greg Laurie, maybe they'll get saved. What they were really saying is, if I can only get my friends to Jesus... Maybe he'll get saved. Maybe she'll get saved. And I believe this is the attitude of the four friends. They carried their friend to Jesus. They saw that they couldn't get in. And so they, they weren't ready to give up yet. The crowds present, prevented the four friends from getting through the door. 
And we all have friends and loved ones that we'd want to bring to Jesus. And sometimes we find that there's obstacles in getting them there. Sometimes it's people sitting within the very churches that we're at. Sometimes it's other family members, other friends. We need, though, to have other-centered lives in our service to Jesus. We not only need to help others get to Jesus, but if necessary, clear the path for them so that none are hindered to come to Jesus. So the four friends, it took some ingenuity, some extreme measures to get their friend to Jesus. The Jewish historian Josephus recorded that in the Jewish homes when they'd have funerals, that they would, once the person was waked, you know, we don't do the wakes too much, uh, not as much anymore in the high price of funerals and stuff. It's usually a one, all-in-one event. Uh, but back in the day, and they still do it for some, uh, the day before the funeral, they'll have a wake where people will come. The, the name wake literally meant years ago, uh, they were unsure if somebody was just maybe really unconscious and not actually dead. They would set them in a room for a few days to see if they would wake if they did not wake up, then they would determine that they were dead. So the Jewish historian, the Jews having this waking procedure, once that takes place, he told of them actually to pull the body out and the coffin and everything out, that they would remove the panels of the roof to pull the body out. And I believe the four friends thought if they can get the dead out of the house, then we can lower the living in to get them in the presence of Jesus. And that's what they did. And I just envision this. I think it's pretty humorous. If you think about this, everybody's sitting in the house. Jesus is teaching. They're right in the middle of the Bible study, and sometimes all of a sudden they hear this faint noise of people doing some work. It's like, who's working at this hour? Don't they know that Jesus is teaching? And then the work gets a little louder and louder, and the people sitting right in front of Jesus, I actually envisioned that one of the guys was peeking through the window, and they're like, a little to the left. They want to get this guy right in front of Jesus. And the people sitting right in front of Jesus, all of a sudden they get debris, start falling on their head. And they look up, and they pull back, and they see four guys kind of poking their heads through. And they lower this man in front of Jesus. They're probably thinking, can't you guys see we're in the middle of a Bible study here? And I can just see Jesus smiling as these men took such a great effort to get their friend to Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, notice what the word says. When Jesus, verse 5, saw their faith, not the faith of the paralytic, but the faith of the four friends. He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Their faith. Matthew, Mark, Luke all tell of Jesus working in this man's life because of the faith of the four friends. It's not that the friend had faith that Jesus could heal him. Maybe he didn't at all. But the friends had faith that Jesus could do the work. That's how it is for us, right? We have friends, family members that don't believe in Jesus, or maybe they even say that there's no way that he could forgive me, no way that he could heal me, and yet we can have such faith for them. We know that Jesus can do it. And so all the four friends had done for their friend, their ingenuity, their extreme measures that they had taken, now it would be rewarded. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And they had faith and they put action to their faith. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you. Now it was apparent to everyone sitting in that room that the man had a great physical need. And yet Jesus saw the greater need. He went to the heart of the issue. Many of the Bible commentators believe that the man's condition was a result of his sin. And if that's true, then the man knew why he lied on, or was laying on that mat. Jesus went to the heart of the issue, to the root of the problem. I can imagine the four friends saying, no, no, we wanted you to heal him. 
your sins are forgiven you. Although everyone in that room, even the four friends, may have misunderstood what Jesus had done for this man, I believe the man knew he was forgiven. And that might have been sufficient for him. Being healed of being paralyzed might have been a bonus, which the Lord would give him that bonus. But to know that his sins were forgiven, that may have been sufficient for him. Acts 13, 38, Paul would preach, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, Jesus, he has preached to you the forgiveness of sin. We preach Christ that people might find forgiveness of sin. Now it tells us that opposition began to rise there in that house. Some of the scribes who were sitting there, they reasoned in their heart, verse 7, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sin but God? Now they are correct. No one else can forgive sins. We can forgive one another. But the psalmist David, when he had sinned with Bathsheba, when he had had Bathsheba's wife Uriah killed in the battle, um, tried to hide that sin from everyone, but he couldn't hide it from God. When he finally confessed his sin in Matthew 51, 4, he rightly said, against you, you only I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. He had hurt many other people, but he knew ultimately he had sinned against the Lord. And so they accused Jesus of blasphemies saying that only the forgiveness of sins can come from God. And so if God alone can forgive sins, what's it say about Jesus? He was either a liar or he was truly God. And so Jesus responded and perceiving their thoughts, verses 8 and 9, Immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they had reasoned thus among themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason these things? In your hearts, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. Now, technically, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven you because no one knows if your sins are actually forgiven you. When Jesus says it, I believe it. If I say it to you, well, I can just say words. But if I say to a paralytic, rise up and walk then the proof of him walking is evidence that his sins have been forgiven. It also gives us a further evidence of Jesus' deity. He perceived their thoughts. Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are naked and open to his eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So verses 10 and 11 that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. So Luke had said, and the power of the Lord was there to heal, was present to heal. But only one man was healed that day. At least that's what's recorded in Scripture for us. Only one who found forgiveness of sin and found healing through the work of Jesus Christ in his life. And the evidence of his healing was his walk. I think that's important as well. In verse 12, immediately he rose, he took up the bed. He went out in the presence of them all. The evidence was in his ability to walk. So that they were all amazed and glorified God and said, We have never seen anything like this. Mark uses that word immediately. He likes using that word. How quickly the power of Jesus Christ can heal and save. He arose quickly. He went out. His sins had been forgiven. The proof, the evidence was in his walk. And that is to this day how we understand that someone is saved through the work of Jesus Christ. We are able to see it in their walk and how they conduct themselves in this life. So all the people were amazed. They joined in with praise and glorifying God. They said, we've not seen anything like this before. And to this day, Jesus is able to meet our greatest need. What need do you have to bring before Jesus today? The greatest need for all of us is forgiveness of sins. 
Maybe it is a healing that you need to take place. Maybe it's some other thing that you've been praying for. To this day, Jesus is able to meet that need. And the Bible tells us in John 3:16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And have you looked to Jesus to meet your greatest need? A great catch of fish. I believe that the Lord was specifically Peter was it was his boat. Peter was the one who responded by kneeling down and saying, I'm a sinner, Lord. Um, I believe Jesus was doing a special work in Peter's heart in this occasion. Because Peter would need to remember the great catch of fish here and another great catch of fish that would take place some two years later. And then a greater catch of fish that would take place on the day of Pentecost, where no doubt Peter said, you have made me become fishers of men when 3,000 came to the Lord that day. So the Lord does a work in our lives, and sometimes he repeats some things for us. Have you got the lesson yet? Do I need to repeat it again? Sometimes he has to. Je Jesus willing to touch the untouchable. He's willing to do that to this day. What sin do we have that cannot be touched and healed by Jesus? And the faith of four friends. I, I so love this because it says that Jesus looked at the man and seeing the faith of the four friends said to the man, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus worked in the paralytic's life because of the faith of the four friends. That gives me courage that the Lord can work through my life for the benefit of others. It gives me courage that the Lord can work through our lives as believers in Jesus Christ, for the benefit of others. And sometimes we might have to have some ingenuity. We have to put some extreme effort into the work. We might have to kind of go to some extreme measures. And some people might think we're crazy. What are you doing tearing the roof off the house? Are you going to pay for that? If I own the house, maybe. But the Lord wants to do a work. It takes faith for the Christ to work in us. Sometimes he can work in behalf of someone because of the faith of others. Sometimes he works because of the faith of the individual. The man who came to Jesus with leprosy, if you're willing. But it takes faith. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us such faith this day to have you work in our own lives as we take a moment to worship you in a last song as we take opportunity to pray, to cry out to you this hour. We ask, Lord, that you would be with us, and, Father, that you'd work in our midst. This day, we ask in the name of Jesus, amen.